Thank you, Aaron and Stephanie, for that. They've been working on that piece a bit, and I am grateful to them, and I hope that you are too, as we continue to reflect. I was, the thing I forgot to mention about Vaughn Williams is that he struggled with faith and acknowledged it relatively publicly, but then chose to, to put these pieces to music and later in life reflected that, I think like much of us, he was on a journey and uh, found ways along the journey through music and so um, and through these words of this poem so what a gift friends let us go to God in prayer gracious God we are grateful indeed that you have given us your word to try and understand you more to journey ever closer to you be with us now in this time as we seek to understand a little bit more of you and to bring ourselves before you amen so as many of you know, when I lived back in California, I was a season ticket holder to the San Jose Sharks. I, uh, you know, I've, I've joked before that the Blackhawks are like my second, my local team, but with both teams doing very poorly, it's like it doesn't really matter at this point. But I was a Sharks fan for, for a very long time, and I lived very close to the arena, so it was quite convenient for me. I would walk to the games. I'd usually walk home from work and then... Uh, and then walk to the arena. And when you go to, to games that many times, a couple times a week, you start to notice things along the route. And um, you, you see things and you remember them and they stand out, almost to the point where you um, expect them naturally. Like the man under one of the overpasses who's been there for many years playing his trumpet quite loud um, with a few pet bunnies always with him, these large, plump rabbits that are always there. And he has these grumpy signs as you get closer and closer, and then especially when you walk past, grumpy signs that, um, well, they're directed at people like me who walked by and, and said things like, uh, you know, I hope you enjoyed your free concert, uh, and, and things like that, assuming we weren't putting money in the hat. Um, or the people uh, at every arena who are buying and selling tickets, right? I was always confused by that one, too. They want to buy my tickets, but they're also willing to, to sell, and I don't know how they make money. It could be shady. I don't know. But they're there. They're always there at the arenas. But whenever I went to games at the, at the Shark Tank, as we call it, the person that I was most intrigued by and perhaps most, uh, most disrupted by on my walk to was a man standing on a stepladder with a small PA system. And he was shouting warnings about the afterlife, about eternity, about my need for Jesus and my sin. It's, it's sort of like those highway billboards. Have you seen those highway billboards? Especially when you get just a little bit outside the metropolitan area. This, this man was like those highway billboards that, that want to know if I know where I'm going when I die. And this man would shout these threats of hell and fire and burning. He pleaded also, though, with those who had ears to hear, pleading that they would listen to him because their future was on the line. And this man was there in nearly all of the games. I was impressed by it. He was always on the street corner, diagonal to the arena, shouting through this distorted sound system of the enthusiastic sounds of this swelling crowd. Sometimes people would engage him, but most of the time, frankly, his sound would sort of disappear as background noises as the masses passed by. I never talked to this man, 
But boy, was I curious. I was curious as to why he felt such urgency after the lives of the people passing by. I was curious as to why he was so confident that all of us, one time he looked me right in the eyes, pointed directly at me and told me that I should get used to eternal damnation. How did he know that all of us were going to be subject to that? My friend that day looked at me and said, well, at least we'll be together and there'll be a lot of hockey fans there, so can't be so bad. What made him so bold that he would drive downtown, find parking, set up that sound system, mount the stepladder, and then rail at the crowds of people? I was curious, just as I'm curious about those billboards, and who's paying for that? Who's paying for these signs to say things like, where are you going, heaven or hell? So I decided to search the internet for an answer. Since I can't track down that stepladder preacher, I looked up these billboards, and I was intrigued to learn about the organization that appears to sponsor the vast majority of these signs. They, they pride themselves on having about 1,500 of them around the United States at a given time. I understand their passion on some level. I get it. They want to help people avoid what they see as an ultimate peril coming after death. And they have a passion for what they consider to be the path or the requirement for salvation. Salvation from something, right? Salvation from some permanent displeasure, from some painful eternity. And very confidently, they use fear as a tool Fear as a tool to try and eliminate concern or a sense of doubt. And they use fear as a tool so that people will listen. And because of their actions, or their words, or their billboards, that they'll be rescued from damnation. And according to this, this one organization, this billboard-promoting organization, according to them, it works. It draws attention. It, it works to get the attention especially of those interstate drivers. In their annual report, I'm telling you, I did a pretty deep dive here. In their annual report, they state that in, state that in 2020, their call centers heard from more than 37,000 people who dialed in to the toll-free number after seeing the signs. Signs like, after you die, you will meet God. And I even listened to some of the clips from the phone calls. And I listened to some of the marketing videos and, and like I said, read their annual report. And I'll, I'll tell you, though, that after doing all this information gathering and reflecting further on that street corner preacher, on the urgency of this organization, I came to the realization that this extreme focus on what happens after death this focus, this question of what happens after we die, the focus even on the fears that are connected to what will happen, all of this, all of the motivation comes out of the fear itself, the place of fear. It comes out of a place and even possibly a sincere space of anxious fear. And it taps into also our motivation for immediacy, for the quick instant fix to make the fear go away. Tell me how to ensure my eternity. That's what one of the callers said on, on the recording that I heard. Historically, this is nothing new to Christianity, and frankly, it's nothing new to the human story, to the human quest. From the, from the earliest of mythological writings, the question has been what happens. As, as soon as we knew about life, we knew about that, that death occurred, right? Death was all around us. And so those fears were, are real. 
And in the last 2,000 years of Christianity, there have always been voices, voices of our faith that have used fear as a motivation. And the thing is, on many levels, this isn't surprising. It isn't surprising because it's easy. Anyone who knows marketing knows that fear is an easy tool to get people on board. It's an easy way to appeal. But in Christianity, it's also easy because a quick read of Scripture often leads us down this path. A quick read of the words of Jesus, even the words like the ones in today's reading, a quick read of the words of Jesus has us fearing eternity and turning to Christ out of fear. For what would we be if we don't? Right? This is, this is where this fear can come from, this, this genesis of the fear. But there's a problem, and I, and I think something's been lost in the translation, in the understanding of the words of Jesus, and in some ways lost in the translation quite literally. And this happens most when the church began to start focusing on the afterlife on the afterlife as the source of drawing people into the church. And even more importantly, more importantly, using that fear of the afterlife as as a way or an attempt to draw people into relationship with God. Our gospel lesson this morning that we, we heard and hopefully you looked at a little bit is from John's gospel. And we've talked about this before, but John's gospel is a little different than the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John's gospel is a little different. It it takes a much more right brain or creative approach in describing Jesus and in showing sometimes more than telling the ways that Jesus was conveying a message. Conveying a message, but also an invitation to his followers and to us. For instance, you you notice when you start reading John's gospel that he repeats phrases throughout the gospel, phrases like flesh and word and light and life, and in this chapter, images of bread. These phrases recur over and over again, indicating that we should pay attention, that we should look more closely, that we should seek to try and understand a little bit more. It's it's a way of inviting us in to understand the mysterious reality of Christ. And that's really what's going on throughout all the Gospels, this attempt to take a difficult, a difficult thing to understand, the indescribable, and then to describe it. That's the challenge. And sometimes, like I said, this gets a little tied up or even lost in translation. I'll tell you that this morning's gospel text is one that's commonly avoided by pastors. You know, first of all, it's right in the middle of summer, and there are other texts in the lectionary, and frankly, a lot of pastors avoid it. Let's just get that out there. When reading it, or when hearing it, it's hard to get, it's actually not hard, I wrote it's hard, it's impossible to get away from the uncomfortable language about eating flesh and drinking blood. Jesus says it several times, and it's pretty graphic language. But here's the thing. We've got to step back a little bit. We've we've got to step back because in order to understand these words, 
we have to step back and look to the earlier part of this chapter. At the start of John chapter 6, Jesus is with his disciples, and he's teaching a small group of people that becomes a big group of people that becomes a huge group of people. And they're, they're all there, the disciples and Jesus and this very large crowd. And, you know, it's kind of interesting because there's nothing in the text to indicate that the people were hungry. But Jesus, knowing that you've got a large crowd, you're out, they've all traveled, they've come this way, people are going to be hungry. And so he says that to, his, uh, to one of his disciples, to Philip, and he says, um, you know, we've got this large crowd here, you need to feed them. It's kind of like my father used to say to my mother when people would come over, oh, there's people visiting, we need to feed them. My mother would look at him, feed them what? You know, and that's what happens here. Philip basically says there's no way we can't feed them. We don't nearly have enough money to feed them. And then Andrew pipes up and says, well, there's this boy over there who's got some fish and he's got some barley loaves. Let's use those. Jesus tells them, have the people sit down. He says there are more than 5,000 of them. Have them sit down. And friends, you know the story. You know the story. They began to pass around the food. And they said, take as much as you need. Eat it. They distribute the fish and the bread, and then afterward they tell people, bring what you have left forward, and we'll put it together, and they take all the crumbs and everything left, and it's far, far, far more than those few loaves and few fish. And the story ends. It ends. Now, in the other Gospels, there's a little bit more, but in this text, it ends there. And Jesus leaves, takes his disciples. Not only do they leave, they get in boats and they really leave. Crowds there, they've been fed. They're probably napping, right? Eating all this fish and bread. Interesting thing happens. Jesus on the, uh, gets in the boat and they, and they leave. And, and they have an eventful night. This is when uh, we, we hear the accounting of Jesus walking on the water, right? And only the disciples see this and they're confused and baffled. And they sleep on the other side of the water. But then the next day, Jesus and the disciples, they don't come back to this crowd. And it's very specific about that. And I I get puzzled by it because I wonder why did the writer add that in? Well, the writer added that in because clearly there was an expectation on behalf of the people because they didn't leave. Jesus' disciples didn't come back. They've gone away to the other side. It's pretty far away. And the crowd goes looking for him. They go looking for Jesus, and they find him. And they ask him, when did you come over here? When did you come here? And Jesus doesn't answer them. He answers the question they're really asking. Instead, he says, you're looking for me because you want food. You're looking for me because I filled your belly with bread and you want more. You want more food for your belly. But he tells them that food you had yesterday, that food you had yesterday, that's not food. Huh? That's not food. Of course it is. He says, this isn't what you need. That food isn't what you need. And they're obviously confused, and and we know that Jesus knows they need food in their belly. We know that. Why? Because he gave it to them. 
He gave it to them. And so, what is he saying? You know, Jesus, who gave them actual food just the day before, but then Jesus says something a little strange. He said, this food, this food that fills your belly, this isn't the food of eternity, the food that endures. That food, he says, comes only from God, and it's a spiritual food. So Jesus is making it clear, but... (laughs) Actually, he's not making it clear at all, right? He's making it clear that it's not clear. He's, he's trying to describe something that really isn't all that clear at all. By contrasting what we know, physical food, we know physical food, he's contrasting it by saying that there's more to our lives than filling our belly. There's more to our lives than finding the things around us that satisfy us. And he says that Think about that hunger, though, that hunger for food, because just as you have physical hunger, all of us universally have physical hunger, we also have a hunger, a longing, a deep need that cannot be met by the things of the world, that can only be met by God. And very much like we need to satiate that physical hunger, we have a need to satisfy our spiritual hunger. We have a a longing for identity in the world, a quest to be understood and a quest for understanding. I've repeatedly called this in our context, I've called it our journey, our journey through this present life. Through this present life, the journey of our lives in the world, the world today and tomorrow, the world of our families and our friends, of our work, of our school, the world of today and tomorrow, the world that includes our fears, yes, but also the world of our great joys and our love and our laughter, all that we are. You see, the world of today and tomorrow is the, Jesus, is the world that Jesus is most concerned with, the world of today and tomorrow. Jesus says in our text from this morning, uh, after he says that he's here to provide this different type of nourishment, nourishment not found in bread but found in him, he says in the present tense, this is a grammar lesson, he says it in the present tense, the present tense, right now, that we abide in Christ. This word abide, it, it can be translated as like remain or, or exist or, or closely knit. We are closely knit with Christ when we eat this spiritual food, that when we seek Christ, when we look for God in our lives, we are presently, today, right now, abiding, remaining, staying, finding ourselves one with Christ. And he uses this flesh and blood and eating language to make this clear because just like when we eat a meal and it becomes part of us, most of it does, but it becomes part of us, when we approach Christ, we become here and now inseparable from Christ, not just when we die, Not at some point when we no longer have those difficult challenges of our lives. Not when the threats subside or temptations are gone. But now, 
Now and in the midst of all we encounter, you'll you'll live with Christ here and now and today and tomorrow. The language, my friends, is present tense. The language is a here and now invitation to be a part of God's eternal realm in the world today. It isn't merely some far-off invitation, some insurance policy for after you die. And it most certainly isn't a threat or a reason for fear. But what is this invitation from Christ? This invitation isn't a toll-free number on a billboard where we're given some easy answers to flip a switch and ensure something. The invitation isn't a clear roadmap even sometimes, or steps. The invitation from Christ is an invitation to live in Christ, to allow Christ to live in us, an invitation to follow where Jesus goes, to seek to have the heart of Jesus internalized within us, that your flesh and blood, your flesh and blood, your being, would become one with Christ, that the God of the cross and the God of the empty tomb would be united with you, that God's work and God's love would nourish you spiritually, and this is what Christ invites us to experience and how Christ invites us to know God in our lives. Through prayer, through God's word revealed in the scriptures, throughout our journeys with others, with one another, and our care for the world and God's people in it, through our worship and our celebration of the sacraments, communion, and baptism. In all of this, and through the gift of the Holy Spirit, this is when we're ingesting the spiritual gift of God's eternal presence. Sit with that for a moment. The bread of life, the one who calls himself the bread of life, the the creator of the universe, the one who came down from heaven. This is the one who desires you, the one who desires each one of us, who wants to abide with you, to remain with you, who invites you, who wants to be so intimately connected with you that he uses these words. He uses these words that graphically describe how close he wants to be with you, inescapably thoroughly, inseparably. And this is the Jesus who indeed promises you, promises you that through the great mystery of God's love for you, through the great wonder and confusion and miracle of a God who invites you, through all of this, it is Christ who promises us, who promises you that you will be raised up united with God, that your eternity with God, an eternity that, yes, begins in the presence, in the present, will be made complete in your death, and that you will be raised up with God, the one who has claimed you, who loves you, who beckons you, the one who says in our text, and I will raise you up on the last day. Is there any greater assurance than that? Any greater comfort? Any greater love? Perhaps there is. Perhaps there is that there's that assurance that on this journey of your life, not only in your death, but on this journey of your life today, now, God is already seeking you, relentlessly seeking you and loving you, 
and claiming you. Present tense, right now. No billboard fear or stepladder street preacher needed. Right now. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.